Welcome to Profiles. I'm Steve Sanders. The U.S. Supreme Court, with its nine justices and their marble temple in Washington, D.C., gets a lot of attention. But there are other Supreme Courts, or as they're sometimes called, appellate courts of last resort, indeed 50 of them, one for each state, including Indiana. One of the members of that Indiana Supreme Court, Justice Jeffrey Slaughter, is our guest today on Profiles. Justice Slaughter was born in Gary, Indiana, grew up in Crown Point, and received three degrees, including a law degree with honors, from Indiana University Bloomington. Justice Slaughter had a distinguished career as a lawyer, working both in private practice and with the Indiana Attorney General's office, before being appointed by Governor Mike Pence in 2016 as the 109th Justice of Indiana's highest court. Justice Jeffrey Slaughter, welcome to Profiles. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. As I said in the opening, lawyers, journalists, and politically aware citizens spend a lot of time trying to understand the U.S. Supreme Court, dissecting its opinions, watching the battles over who gets nominated and appointed. But there are two systems of courts in our country, federal and state. The U.S. Supreme Court sits atop the federal courts, and your court sits atop Indiana's court system. So to start out as a practical matter, what's different about the work of those two courts? How is the docket and the day-to-day business of your court different from that other Supreme Court in Washington that we all hear so much about? Well, of course, federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. Uh, State courts in Indiana are not. So our state courts in Indiana... We have 92 counties and at least one circuit court and, in some cases, multiple superior courts, depending on the population, throughout our state. And those courts hear cases of all kinds, from small infraction cases, dog bite cases, to capital murder cases on the criminal side, small petty fender bender cases involving automobile accidents, to complex antitrust or securities law issues. We take all comers. And frankly, the volume of our courts in Indiana is substantially larger than that of the federal courts nationally. I mean, in the Indiana courts last year, there were about a million three hundred thousand filings of all kinds. That includes the small infraction to serious criminal cases, small civil cases to complex business disputes. Whereas the federal courts hear no more than a few hundred thousand cases per year in the district courts nationally. Limited jurisdiction means that the federal courts can only hear certain types of cases, usually cases arising under federal law. But you can bring a federal law case, a state law case, just about anything to an Indiana court. But still, as a practical matter, there are sort of differences of concentration, right? I mean, looking at the docket of your court, I see lots of cases, uh, some recurring themes, um, state criminal law, family law issues, juveniles, marriage, that kind of thing, real estate, business, commercial law. There are areas of law that are traditionally the province of the states, and those are going to be more heavily reflected on your docket. Is that right? That's certainly true. Absolutely. And what you describe is especially true in the trial courts with Indiana. That's less true, however, in our court. For example, it wasn't all that long ago when the jurisdiction of our court by constitutional fiat was that any criminal case involving a sentence of at least 10 years would bypass the Court of Appeals and there was an automatic direct right of appeal to the Indiana Supreme Court. That's now changed, but for the longest time, 
The cases that our court heard were overwhelmingly criminal cases because there were so many cases involving sentences of at least 10 years that they really crowded out the opportunity for our court as a court of last resort to review civil law cases. With the result for the longest time, it was the serious civil law cases in Indiana that were being decided by our court of appeals. And through the leadership of then Chief Justice Shepard, we amended our Constitution a couple of times so that now the only criminal cases that we must hear that are subject to our mandatory jurisdiction, still bypassing the Court of Appeals, are death penalty cases and so-called LWAP cases, life without parole, with the possibility of parole. Since I've been on the court uh, three years, I don't think there's been more than a handful of death penalty and LWAP cases in any given year, and sometimes there are fewer than that. So the subject matter of our court certainly reflects what happens in our lower courts, but we don't take every criminal case, for example, that comes down the pike because the constitutional right to appeal is to the court of appeals only unless there's automatic appeal to us. Your court has what lawyers call a largely discretionary docket, meaning you and your colleagues pick and choose which appeals from the lower appellate court, the Indiana Court of Appeals, to take. How many cases a year does your court handle typically, and what percentage is that of all the cases that litigants want you to hear as a Supreme Court? Um, As I mentioned earlier, 1.3 million cases filed in our trial courts. About 3,000 of those are the subject of an appeal every year. The overwhelming majority of criminal cases get pled out. The overwhelming majority of civil cases get settled. So of the million three, only 3,000 get appealed. About a third of those go away each year. Again, through failure to prosecute, there may be a settlement at the appellate level, with the result that each year our Court of Appeals decides about 2,000 cases by written opinion. Of those 2,000, and it depends on the year, but anywhere between 40 and 50 percent of those will be the subject of a discretionary petition asking for us to take the case, between 800 and 1,000 per year. It used to be the case within the last five to 10 years that our grant rate, the percentage of petitions that we would grant, was about 10 to 11 percent. Over the last few years, that percentage has declined in, I suspect, what the statisticians would call a statistically significant way. No longer are we granting transfer in 10 to 11 percent of the cases. It's more like 6 to 7 percent. So what are the criteria, again, looking at some of the opinions you've authored in the three years I see, opinions on juvenile justice, on easements in real estate, on some commercial law issues, what does it take for a case to make the cut to be among this relatively small percentage that your court sees as significant enough to spend its time on? Typically, it's a question of law that the five of us perceive to be one of importance, and that's far more art than science. Is it an issue that's likely to recur? If it's a one-off case, really interesting, perhaps sexy, legal or constitutional question that's almost certainly not going to recur, that's far less likely to draw our attention than an issue that we've seen and are expecting to see again and again. The criteria are laid out in a formal rule, but again, it's far more art than science. It's not an exhaustive list. It's illustrative of the kinds of issues we look at. But, you know, is it an important question of Indiana law that either has not been resolved and needs to be, or that we've resolved previously that lower courts don't understand, they're misapplying our precedent, or perhaps it's an issue we've decided previously that really is in need of reconsideration in light of changed circumstances. Any of those or all of those are grounds that we will look at in assessing whether it's an issue that we're likely to take. Talk just a little bit about how one gets to the Indiana Supreme Court. The process certainly isn't as high profile and visible and contentious as appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
And before the governor appoints you, there's something called a judicial nominating commission that actually sort of makes some cuts. So what was your path to your appointment in 2016 by the governor? Well, the story actually starts a little earlier than 2016 because I was an unsuccessful applicant to our court first in 2010 and then again in 2012. So third time in my case proved to be a charm. But in 2016, there was a vacancy coming up on our court. Former Chief Justice Brent Dixon, who had served on our court for 30 years, second longest serving tenured justice in our state's history, was retiring. And his successor as Chief Justice, Loretta Rush, from IU Maurer Law School, class of 83, was the chief. And she, as chair of the Judicial Nominating Commission, opened applications for a vacancy. And I think there were 30 of us who applied. So this begins like a job application, essentially. It does. The Judicial Nominating Commission is charged with filling vacancies in the Supreme Court, our Court of Appeals, and in our tax court. That is, seeking applications, conducting interviews of those who have applied, and at the end of the day, recommending three names, three finalists whose names go to the governor. I went through a couple of rounds of interviews through the Judicial Nominating Commission. I should tell you as an aside that that commission consists of seven members. It's chaired by the Chief Justice of Indiana. There are three lawyer members who are elected from their respective judicial districts, three throughout the state. There are also three non-lawyers who were appointed by the governor, and those seven individuals will meet, receive applications, invite applicants to interview. I think they typically will interview all comers, though I don't think that's always the case, but that's generally the practice. And then, in my case, I went through two rounds of interviews. I was fortunate to be selected as one of three finalists, and then the process began all over again with the governor's office. His legal team first met with me and spent some time asking me about issues involving my own judicial philosophy, what do I believe the role of courts to be. And then after being vetted by the governor's folks, uh, sat down and I believe all three finalists then met with the governor. And that process by constitutional fiat is that within 60 days, the governor must announce who his choice mm -hmm. to fill the vacancy is or else the pick goes to the chief justice. Well, in my case, Governor Pence announced me as Justice Dixon's successor on day 59. Um, read into that what you will. It was just, just barely under the wire. So if it's not an appropriate ask, what did you and Governor Pence talk about? What kinds of things was he interested in in deciding among the three finalists? Uh, well, I don't know, of course, what he asked of the others. But in my case, first of all, I think he wanted to take the measure of the man. He just wanted to know about my background. Um, why did I go to law school? What was of interest to me? He, of course, is a lawyer himself. Not quite a contemporary of mine, though just a few years my senior, but I'd gotten to know him through some Liberty Fund programs that he and I had attended together. And then he asked me, uh, what was my judicial philosophy? Why do you want to be a Supreme Court justice? What's your vision for the court? What kinds of things do you think the court ought to be doing, perhaps that it's not doing now or shouldn't be doing that it is doing now? And after the governor appoints you, by law, Supreme Court justices in Indiana are the subject of retention vote, correct? Uh, there's a question that appears on the ballot that says, shall Justice X be retained in office? And I believe you have successfully passed one of those retention votes, and then you won't have to worry about that again for, is it 10 years? 10 years, like correct. That? Okay. In Indiana, lower court judges, trial judges are elected. Are 
is the involvement in the public in electing judges or deciding whether justices should be retained a good thing? That's not something we see with federal courts. Federal judges are appointed for life or good behavior, and that's the end of it. Well, some trial court judges in Indiana are elected. The most populous counties now have gone to a judicial selection format whereby a commission that exists at the local level, much as exists at the state level for appellate judgeships. For example, I succeeded Justice Bob Rucker, who is also a native of Lake County as I am. For years, he chaired the Lake County Judicial Nominating Commission. When he retired from the court, I succeeded him in that position. And for, in fact, just the last seven or eight months, um, I've been a busy fellow traveling up and down I-65 to Lake County and Crown Point conducting interviews for what I believe are now five or six vacancies out of the 17 members of the Lake Superior Court. Plenty of judges in Indiana, a majority still are And there's elected. still a level of public involvement that those commissions provide that, again, we're not accustomed to seeing with federal judges who are appointed by the president, and that's the end of it. So is it, is it a healthy thing for the public to be involved in selecting and retaining judges? Well, as a product of the judicial nominating process, it would be uh, ungracious of me to say that it's a bad system. My personal view is that it's a good system. I can tell you that the composition of our court, and I think of our appellate bench generally, would be very different if, like many of our sister states, we elected judges to our appellate bench as the states of Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, and Kentucky do. You said correctly that in Indiana, judicial vacancies, even on our state's highest court, tend to be fairly low profile, and that's certainly true. That's not true, for example, if you go to those other states where judges are elected. It's a vote. It's Smith versus Jones. They campaign. They raise money. They have big billboards. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon to have millions of dollars in contributions to those judicial campaigns from all sides of the aisle politically, um, all sides of the aisle within the legal profession, mm -hmm. uh, trial lawyers, the plaintiff's bar on the one hand, insurance, defense, and defense counsel on the other side, and it's a veritable campaign. I certainly would never have sought a position on our state's highest court if that's how we chose people in Indiana. Others have a different view. Others think that the electoral system is the Jacksonian way. It's the way the people's voice are most directly heard, and that when you put those responsibilities in the hands of an elite few in a progressive era model, you tend to get bias one way or the other. Um, those decisions are made above my pay grade. But there's, uh, I think, a lot to be said for our system. And I, I should tell you, and maybe I'm telling you something you already know, Steve, but in Indiana, we have actually run the gamut in the way that we choose our appellate judges. At the time of our, uh, at statehood in 1816, we used to choose judges along the way the federal model. That is, the governor, the executive would nominate, the state senate would vote to confirm. In 1851, when we changed our constitution, at a new constitutional convention out of which came our new constitution, we went to a Jacksonian state electoral system. People would run for the appellate bench, as they do in our neighboring states, and that system remained in place until another constitutional amendment in 1970. So beginning in 1972, with that election and that calendar year, that's the first time in Indiana, relatively recent history, that we've gone to the model that we have today. If you're just joining us, this is WFIU's Profiles. I'm Steve Sanders. Our guest is Justice Jeffrey Slaughter, who currently serves as the 109th Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court. 
there are only five members of your court. There are nine in the U.S. Supreme Court. Some states have larger courts. There are only five people making decisions on that court. Does that small size work well? What are the dynamics among your colleagues? Are there frequent disagreements? Do you all tend to see issues the same way in a given case? Would the dynamics be different if there were seven or nine of you rather than just five? I imagine they would be. Um, Of course, I've never been on a larger court than five. I've never been on a smaller court than five. So I know what I know. I know what my experience is. And I would imagine just the way the interactions work among my four colleagues that increasing the size of the court to seven or to nine would appreciably change the dynamic and would increase not just arithmetically but even geometrically the interrelations and the necessary interaction. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's just, I think, inevitable when you have a larger court. The dynamics are terrific. I mean, we have, I think, in Indiana, we're the largest state population-wise that has only five justices. Arizona used to have only five, but within just the last few years, they've expanded their court to seven. I believe Nevada and Alaska still have only five. Idaho may have only five, but there aren't many left. Most have gone to seven. A few are as large as nine. But we're on the smaller end of that spectrum, certainly. We'll talk later about a couple of recent cases where you've descended. But are there any particular recurring clear lines of disagreement or ideology on this court? That's a fair question. I guess I should begin by noting that for the first time since we've done judicial selection in Indiana the way that we do since 1972, I understand that this is the first time that all five members of the court have been appointed by a governor of the same party, not the same governor. The five of us have been appointed by three different governors, three by Governor Daniels, one by Governor Pence, and one very recently by Governor Holcomb. So some on the outside have asked, believe, that because we all were appointed by governors of the same party, that we have monolithic views on things. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, we all have perhaps a common worldview about the role of government and the role of courts, but how that operates, how that is applied in practice really is very different. And we have sometimes spirited discussions, not only on the merits of once we've taken a case, how should a particular case come out, but even disagreements philosophically about what is our role and what kinds of cases should we be taking. And I have my own view. My colleagues have their own view. Sometimes those jibe, sometimes they don't. But one thing that I've really appreciated about having the chance to serve with these colleagues is that we get along very well. They're not friends. I wouldn't describe them as friends. I don't spend a lot of time outside the office with them, but they're professional family, and we get along wonderfully. Um, I was going to ask whether the working relationships on a court like this tend to be very formal. I know there was at least a time in the recent past in the U.S. Supreme Court where the justices communicated with each other by paper memos delivered by clerks to each other's chambers, and it's all sort of very formal and distant. Are things less formal on your court? I think that you and Justice Mark Massa were not contemporaries, but were at IU around the same time. I know that Justice Massa was a sports writer for The Daily Student. I think you spent some time on The Daily Student. You're an avid Cubs and IU football fan. Do you come in each other's chambers and talk about sports, or do things not work that way? Um, They do work that way. Justice Massa is the only member of our court whom I knew before either of us was a judge. We had some mutual friends and would interact occasionally, though I certainly didn't know him well. And I've only gotten to know him better since I joined the court. And by the way, he's very smart, a wonderful colleague for a Brewers fan. He's a Milwaukee boy. He grew up in Wisconsin, came to Bloomington 
to study journalism at Indiana University. I suspect that's where you and he mm-hmm. first crossed paths at your time together on The Daily Student. Mark is an avid Brewers fan. I'm an avid Cubs fan. And uh, those clashes during baseball season during the NL Central can be sometimes um, less than friendly, but we get along wonderfully. He's a wonderful colleague, and despite his affinity for the Brewers, I think very highly <laughs> of him. But that's also true of my other colleagues. I'm not a golfer. Justice Mass and Justice David are avid golfers. They talk golf. I generally tune out when the subject turns to golf, but we have a lot of fun together. I mean, we're colleagues. We have important business. We take that work seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously, and we enjoy each other's company. Later in the program, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about your work on the court, but let's turn for a little bit to learn more about you and your personal background. You were born and raised in Northwest Indiana. What did your parents do? Yeah, I'm a Lake County boy, Northwest Indiana. My father was a newspaper man. I hesitate to call him a journalist because he didn't go to journalism school. He was an autodidact, read avidly, really had an encyclopedic knowledge of so many things, and really had a very interesting background from farmer to steel worker to uh, he was an electronics whiz, um, had started his own company. He was an entrepreneur for a while, had a few patents that he had developed, but wound up gravitating into something that was always a passion of his, which was writing, and became a newspaper man and spent the last 30-plus years of his career as a newspaper man and as a newspaper columnist. My mother was a school teacher and a librarian. Um, she was the pastor's daughter. Her father was a Methodist minister. The Methodist Church then, and I think largely still today, had a lot of itinerant preachers. That is, they might spend four or five years at a given community and then relocate. Uh, My mom was born in Evansville, where her parents both were in school at Evansville College before it was Evansville, the University of Evansville. Wound up spending her first year of high school in South Bend, at South Bend Central High School, where John Wooden was, I think, the English teacher and athletic coach and taught P.E., but because her father was transferred from the Methodist Church in South Bend to Crown Point, she spent her senior year at Crown Point High School, class of 42. Her father was in the church. She played music, was the organist, and that's how my folks first met. Um, My dad had been a student at Hammond High School and graduated in 37. His family had moved south to South Lake County where his father bought a farm. His father was a practicing lawyer in Lake County. And my dad was the tobacco-smoking, bourbon-drinking, poker-playing guy in the choir who was interested in the pastor's daughter. Um, that, you might expect, wasn't initially well-received, but eventually <laughs> my maternal grandparents came to love my father for the great husband and father he would become. So. I guess it strikes me that both of those professions, being a a newspaper man and a teacher, are in some ways involved with our democracy and sort of very public-spirited professions in a way. Did that influence you? What drew you to law school and ultimately to a career in law? Well, I was always interested in what my grandfather did. He was a practicing lawyer. As a boy growing up, I was interested in writing. I had a Mac for writing that my dad recognized. I swore it off probably as a contrarian young boy. If dad's a writer, I'm going to do something else. But I was always interested in government and politics. I studied economics and mathematics as an undergrad in Bloomington, but took a lot of classes in political science and political philosophy. Always knew that I wanted to go to law school, though I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. But that's what initially took me to the law. 
You mentioned earlier that I went through law school as part of a joint degree program with Kelly. I studied finance in the business school, assuming that I was going to be a transactional lawyer doing M&A work, mergers and acquisitions work. I spent my first summer with a large law firm in Chicago initially doing that, but because I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do, also taking the chance to work in some other areas. And I found the transactional practice far less interesting than I imagined, and the litigation practice, in particular appellate antitrust work, to be right up my alley. Transactional being lawyers who advise clients and draft documents and put deals together that aren't necessarily in court. Litigation or litigators are people who go to court and sue other people and argue about who's right versus who's wrong in the law. Well said, exactly. So this may seem like a bit of an odd question, but I'm wondering if your sort of lifelong background as a Hoosier, grew up Lake County boys, you said three degrees from IU. Does that bring something to your work on the court? Well, many lawyers might make very good, very competent judges. Is there something to be said for the idea that someone whose roots in a state run deep might bring some special insight to deciding questions of Indiana law? It would be nice to think so. I'm not sure being candid with you that that's necessarily the case. Um, Four of my five colleagues grew up here. As I mentioned, Justice Massa is a Wisconsin native. He may not have had the Hoosier blood running through his veins as a young boy that the rest of us did, but he has hit the ground running and has spent a lot of time in Indiana, 35 years now since he first came to, actually almost 40 years since he first came to Bloomington as an undergrad. I don't know that his knowledge or ability to apply principles of Indiana law or any less successful than the rest of ours. Fair enough. After law school, you served as a law clerk to Alan Sharp, who was a federal judge who sat in northern Indiana. And I know that experience had great professional and personal significance for you. What did you learn during those two years of apprenticeship with Judge Sharp? Judge Sharp Sharp was a, a wonderful mentor and friend. I joined his chambers right out of law school did reasonably well in law school, had a job after his chambers to go to work for a large firm in Chicago. So I figured I know my stuff and I'm going to hit the ground running and impress the judge. And the first day I arrived in his chambers, I realized how little I knew. And he wasn't shy about telling me how little I knew. It was a wonderful training for a young lawyer. He ran his chambers uh, like a boot camp. He had a particular knack. He was a wonderful people person. He could read people beautifully. And he knew precisely what I needed. I didn't appreciate I needed what I did. He saw it. And the first six months that I was in his chambers, I was miserable. I was ready to do something else. I had no interest in staying there and thought, well, I'm just going to start my job in Chicago earlier than I'd expected. I hope he doesn't hold it against me, but I'm off to Chicago. And my very wise father said, um, I'm not so sure you ought to be leaving the judges. Why don't you give him another month or two and see how things turn around? And in so many ways, as in this, my father's wisdom was substantial. And that next 30 to 60 days proved to be transformational in how I viewed the judge, how I responded to the judge. He turned out to be a lifelong mentor and friend, both during and after my clerkship. He rightly perceived that, um, he said to me, as though it were yesterday, Slaughter those lawyers at Kirkland and Ellis in Chicago are going to chew you up and spit you out, and you need to get toughened up, and he did. That's what he thought you needed. Absolutely, and he was right. 
So before your appointment to the Indiana Supreme Court, you worked for this large Chicago-based law firm, Kirkland & Ellis. You then spent time with the Indiana Attorney General's office. And then for your appointment with the Indianapolis office of another major firm, Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, what was your law practice like? Were there certain kinds of matters you specialized in? I loved litigation. I especially enjoyed appellate work, or what in some firms are called an issues and appeals practice. It's research, writing, thinking, going into court and delivering oral arguments. I wasn't a trial lawyer. At the trial level, trial courts, trial lawyers are basically trying to get at what the facts are. Did something happen or not? At the appellate level, you're really arguing more about what law should apply to a set of facts. Is that an accurate summary? But in the trial court, I did plenty of litigation work both in Chicago and at the Taft firm in Indianapolis, arguing dispositive motions, helping prepare dispositive motions. We sometimes would try cases, uh, especially in a complex case where the dollars were sufficiently large that it justified having an appellate lawyer attend trial. I would do as much writing as needed to be done, but I also would be watching, guiding trial counsel with an eye toward what issues on appeal might be those that we would need to grapple with. So I was involved in a lot of aspects of trial court litigation as well, just not as the go-to trial lawyer. My colleagues knew better than to put me in front of a jury. As a lawyer, you were active in an organization called the Federalist Society, which is a group for conservative and libertarian lawyers and law students. The Federalist Society has gotten a certain amount of attention, not all of it positive, in recent years for the role that some of its leaders have played in helping the Trump administration identify federal judicial nominees, for example. What is the Federalist Society and what motivated you to be involved with it as part of your professional life? Well, the Federalist Society, I think, is best described as a debating society. You've correctly described those who tend to be members of the Federalist Society. Largely, it's lawyers. I think there are some non-lawyers as well. But they tend to be lawyers who are of a conservative or a libertarian bent. But even within that sort of broad categorization of libertarian or conservative lawyers on what you might think as major issues of the day, you'll see all comers, all kinds, whether the issue is a hot-button issue like abortion or capital punishment or something else. There is no monolithic view among Federalist Society members about what the government's role or the state's role ought to be in regulating or not, uh, for example, the abortion issue or something else. It's a debating society. I don't know if you're still involved. I seem to recall you might have been involved early on with the ACS, the American Mm -hmm. Constitution Society. Which is the sort of progressive alternative to the Federalist Society. Um, And it's been a while since I've attended an ACS function, but if they operate as the Federalist Society does, the Federalist Society will have debates. They will bring a conservative or a libertarian speaker on a particular topic. To my knowledge, the Federalist Society does not and never has taken a position on particular issues of the day, but they will then bring in other speakers so that there can be a debate, for example, on whatever issue and let the audience that attends, after hearing thoughtful speakers on both sides of an issue, come to their own conclusions about what makes sense. You've now been a Supreme Court justice here in Indiana for about three years. As you described, you'd spent most of your career previously as a litigator, as an advocate, as somebody representing clients and urging a court to adopt a particular point of view. Now you're on the other side of the bench. Was that transition difficult for you to make? Honestly, it was more difficult than I assumed it would be. In my former life as a practicing lawyer, I did a lot of appellate work, including arguing in front of the court on which I now sit. 
So unlike a lot of my colleagues who I don't know did much appellate work, if any, in their prior lives as practicing lawyers, I had done quite a bit in our own state appellate courts and the Federal Appeals Court in Chicago, other federal appellate courts. I assumed the transition would be fairly routine, fairly smooth. It proved to be, but it took a lot longer than I expected it to. I figured six months in and I'll have figured it all out and I'll be ready to hit the ground running. In my case anyway, it was closer to a year and a half, almost two years before I really felt comfortable with what I was doing. For me anyway, having come from a private practice background where the position that you embrace as a lawyer is easy, it's whatever your client wants you to argue for, I found, at least in my case, that when I became a member of our state's highest court, trying to figure out what the right result is was easier said than done. It was a hard transition for me. There are other members of your court who had been judges on lower courts in Indiana, trial courts. Um, Before coming to the state Supreme Court, you did not. Does that make a difference? I think it probably does. In fact, I'm sure it does. Three of my colleagues were trial court judges before they joined our court. One of my colleagues, very briefly, Justice Rucker and I, overlapped for only a year. He had been a judge before he joined our court, though not on the trial level. He had been a judge on our court of appeals and was appointed to our bench. But I think that kind of judicial experience, seeing the world differently as a judge, as a judicial officer than as an advocate, at least in my case, took some getting used to. And I suspect that's true of most of us. I've not talked with Justice Massa to learn his learning curve. Um, He, like me, had been a practitioner before he joined the bench, and this is the first court on which he sat at any level. So I don't know what his experience was, but that was mine. What are your hobbies? What do you do outside of work when you're not reading briefs and donning the robe to hear oral arguments and deciding cases with your colleagues? Well, I love tennis. I still view a lot of tennis, and I I used to play it actively. Unfortunately, none of my friends or contemporaries plays tennis anymore. So I don't play tennis. I mentioned I'm not a golfer, as a few of my colleagues are, though we live across the street from a golf course and I walk the course a great deal. Um, My wife and I like to travel. We are avid walkers. I enjoy walking a course without my golf clubs. I'm an avid reader. I like biographies and history and the occasional suspense murder mystery. But I found that since I joined the court, there is less time than I imagined for the kind of extracurriculars, the fun time that I expected. It's not to say we work 24-7, but there's just far more reading than I imagined. I used to take CLE classes when I was a practicing lawyer legal education. from appellate judges, and they would always say, know your audience, uh, remember who your audience is, we're busy people with a lot to read. And I would think to myself, well, yeah, yeah, you know, we're all busy, we all have a lot to read. I didn't appreciate until I became an appellate judge just how true that is. There is a ton of reading, and those lawyers who practice in our courts who appreciate just how much reading judges do need to understand how they craft the documents they submit to us, the briefs that they file, to understand that the more quickly and effectively you can make the point, less is more. Fewer pages are always better than more pages, and that's a valuable lesson that I'd always heard but wish I'd understood quite so well when I was still practicing. If you're just joining us, this is WFIU's Profiles. I'm Steve Sanders. Our guest is Justice Jeffrey Slaughter, the 109th Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court. 
is appointed to the Indiana Supreme Court, Indiana's highest appellate court, by Governor Mike Pence in 2016. Before that, he had a distinguished career as a litigator in both state government and private practice and is a product of an Indiana University education with a bachelor's degree, a law degree, and an MBA. So, Justice Slaughter, we've talked a little bit about you personally. I want to come back now and talk in a little more depth about your work as a justice on this court. And you mentioned this is a question that Governor Pence had asked you. What is your judicial philosophy? And by that, I don't mean ideology. Are you liberal or conservative? I guess I mean more, is there this framework within which you think about the law and particularly the role of a court like the one on which you sit? Sure. The uh, I guess the way I'd best describe my judicial philosophy, my view of the role of courts, is to describe myself as an originalist and a textualist. Originalism in the sense that the Constitution is to be interpreted according to the way that those who enacted it, who ratified it, would have understood the words of the Constitution at that time. A textualist in the sense that words mean something. And whatever may have been the spirit of the time, if the words don't reflect that, whether we're talking about construing a constitution or a statute, what did the legislature mean, what did the legislature intend. In my view, the words trump the intention. So I think that describes, in a sense, a methodology, a sort of you know what one looks to to interpret words and text. But what about the role of courts, the role of judges, and their role in a democratic society, their role as members of a coordinate branch of government? Well, for the most part, except when you consider our role as a state court of last resort when it comes to shaping the common law in Indiana. And the common law being essentially that law that has been developed over the years through judicial decision, not statutes passed by legislatures. Correct. With the exception of our common law responsibilities, and those are substantial, though they are dwindling by the same token because we're a more codified society. We have more regulations that form law. We have more statutes that form law both at the federal level and at the state level. There is a lesser role for that common law responsibility, but it's an important role nonetheless, and I don't mean to diminish it. But the lion's share of what we do, certainly in the criminal area, we no longer have common law crimes in Indiana. The only crimes that exist, for example, in Indiana are those that are defined by statute. Contracts, private agreements between parties, unless they're oral agreements, and they're fairly rare, written contracts involve the interpretation of the written word. A lot of what we do is interpreting texts, whether constitutions, regulations, statutes, private parties' agreements. And my belief in the judicial role when it comes to interpreting those written texts is to do the best one can to give meaning to the words that were agreed to by the parties, promulgated by the legislature, ratified by the people in their constitution. All the matters that your court decides are inherently important and legally challenging because only a relatively small number of cases get to a Supreme Court. Are there particular types of matters, particular subjects that you find more interesting than others that you sort of say, oh, you know, this is something I really can't wait to get into or, boy, this is something I really wish I didn't have to deal with? I certainly really relish constitutional cases, whether in the criminal side or on the the civil law side. I had a little bit of exposure when I was in the attorney general's office to certain aspects of that office's criminal docket, its criminal responsibilities, including death penalty cases at the very end of the process. 
once the condemned man or his lawyer on his behalf was seeking discretionary review either in the Supreme Court of Indiana or on federal habeas review in the Supreme Court of the United States, those criminal areas notwithstanding, the overwhelming majority of my practice has been civil law, so I'm still learning about the criminal law area. I'm fortunate to have two colleagues in the persons of Justice Massa and Justice David who have done a lot of criminal law work in their years. Massa used to be a state and federal prosecutor in his former days. My colleague, Justice Steve David, had done both prosecution and defense work for the Army at Guantanamo Bay and has fascinating stories, as you might imagine, from his time there. So I enjoy constitutional cases on the criminal side. I enjoy them on the civil side. And I guess within the area of constitutional law, I think those that are most of interest to me are separation of powers questions, structural questions about what is the role of government writ large, and in particular, how are those responsibilities of government to be assigned among the coordinate branches the of government? boundaries between the legislative branch and the executive branch, or the executive branch and the courts. Precisely. So your court receives briefs, hears an oral argument. How is it decided who writes the opinion? My understanding from what I hear from other state courts of last resort as well as the Supreme Court of the United States is that we're a little more informal about that. I've been told by our Chief Justice, Chief Justice Rush, that when she attends Conference of Chief Justice meetings, her colleagues, other Chief Justices, can't believe that we do it the way we do in Indiana, which is the Chief Justice doesn't just say, okay, Slaughter, this is yours to write. We actually have a conversation among ourselves, and we ask ourselves, is anybody especially interested in this case? Did anybody want to write this or really have no interest in writing it? And through that informal process, we will decide among ourselves whose turn it is. I've read a certain amount of your judicial output, and your writing style tends to be on the side of being more informal. You use contractions, which not all legal writers do. Sometimes in subheadings, in an opinion, you will pull out interesting words or phrases and quote from the record. Who do you see as your audience when you're writing an opinion? Well, I have several audiences. Most immediately, of course, are the litigants and the lawyers in the case that we've just decided, but especially because we're pronouncing law for the state of Indiana, our audience, I think, as a practical matter, is much broader than that. We don't just take every case that comes down the pike. We decide those cases that we think are going to have legal significance on a statewide basis. And frankly, at least in my view, that's the audience that we need to write for. Do you consciously strive to make your writing style accessible? Absolutely. Absolutely. As you know, lawyers, like many other professions, tend to have their own vocabulary, and lawyers at a cocktail party can start talking their own language, and non-lawyers will scatter like uh, cockroaches when the lights come on, because who wants to hear a bunch of lawyers talking about stuff that only lawyers understand? It seems to me that one of our most important roles in the way we carry it out is to write opinions that are clearly written in accessible language, not using the William F. Buckley um, $5 words when a 50-cent word will do the trick. The importance is to be communicative and to make those who are subject to our rules, not just the lay public, but lower courts who are charged with applying the rules we pronounce, to make sure that they understand what the rules are and how they're to apply. I want to talk about a case that you were the author of the opinion for your court. It was a case decided this past spring that made some news in Indiana, as well as some important law when the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed with a decision your court had issued and used the case as a vehicle to essentially create a new right under the U.S. Constitution. 
The case is called Timms versus Indiana, and it involves a man from Marion, Tyson Timms, whose $40,000 Land Rover was seized by local authorities after Mr. Timms was arrested for selling about $225 worth of drugs. And the authority for local governments to do this comes from something that's called civil forfeiture. In its decision this past spring, the U.S. Supreme Court said that Mr. Timms had the right to make the claim that under the part of the Constitution's Eighth Amendment, barring what are called excessive fines, essentially the door was open for him to argue that losing his expensive vehicle as punishment for a relatively low-level drug crime was, in effect, an unconstitutionally excessive fine. Your court had come to a different conclusion. You wrote your court's opinion in Tim's that was then reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Since the litigation in this case continues before your court, I know you're limited in what you can say, but can you simply summarize the two different results? What was the basis for the difference between how you and your colleagues saw the critical issue in this case versus what the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately decided? Sure. Well, what I'm telling you is in the public domain and involves the first decision. I can't talk about the pending case that you will appreciate. But the case that was decided, I think, in November of 2017 that's now been reversed by the Supreme Court was a question about the incorporation. That is, does a provision of the Bill of Rights, or in this case, the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause, apply to the states? The case came to us on the merits question of whether civil forfeiture in the case of Mr. Timms was excessive. And through the internal process that we touched on a little bit, the case was assigned to me for writing. And my initial undertaking was to decide the merits of the excessive fines question. The more research I did, the more intrigued I became because I was surprised to learn that it appeared that the Supreme Court of the United States had never held that the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment applied to the states. Now, as you know, Steve, as a distinguished professor of constitutional law, the overwhelming majority of the provisions of the Bill of Rights have been incorporated. The First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, uh, the Eighth Amendment rule against cruel and unusual punishment. The Bill of Rights originally was written to protect people against the federal government, and gradually the Supreme Court took those provisions and said those apply to states as well. But this thing called the Excessive Fines Clause of the Eighth Amendment was in more of a gray area. In several states... There had been no definitive holding from the Supreme Court of the United States on that. Some states had said, yes, we will enforce that excessive fines clause and make it applicable to state action. Other states had said, no, we're not going to do that. So the threshold question for us was, are we going to decide the excessive fines clause issue on the merits, or are we going to ask the Supreme Court, or at least leave it up to the Supreme Court to decide that question for us? And as you know, 5-0, our court issued a decision at the end of 2017 that said, we're not going to decide the merits question about Mr. Timms's excessive fines claim because the incorporation doctrine is the Supreme Court's doctrine. It was originally the Supreme Court that had said early on in the first third of the 19th century that the Federal Bill of Rights applies to the federal government and not the states. And because subsequently, through its incorporation doctrine, the Supreme Court had said, selectively, we're going to decide which provisions of the Bill of Rights are to be incorporated and enforced against the states. Our judgment was, our opinion said, the Supreme Court hasn't yet told us in Indiana that it applies. So we are going to say there is no such right that can be enforced against the state of Indiana. 
we decided the case on very narrow grounds, left it up to the parties to raise it as a cert-worthy question if the Supreme Court wanted to take it up. It seemed that our case would be a perfect vehicle with which to do so. And of course, Mr. Timms did so successfully, persuaded the Supreme Court to take his case. And 9-0, the Supreme Court reversed us and said, indeed, the Eighth Amendment Successive Fines Clause does apply. So your court's opinion was 5-0. to zero. Theirs was 9-0 to zero the other way. But this really wasn't a matter of the U.S. Supreme Court saying, you know, you judges in Indiana don't understand the law. As I understand it, it was really a matter of your court as a state court saying, we are not going to consider ourselves bound by a rule of the Constitution that we are uncertain that the Supreme Court intends for us to be bound by. We'll wait and let the Supreme Court answer that question, and then we'll come back and deal with it. Is that a fair Well, we certainly view ourselves as bound by federal law. The question is whether that aspect of federal law was enforceable against the states. Oddly enough, and as you know, since the Bill of Rights was first ratified in 1791, 228 years have lapsed and never before this February 2019 had the Supreme Court undertaken to hold. There had been some suggestions both ways from various opinions from the Supreme Court. Yes, it's incorporated. No, it's not. But they never held so in a case until the Timms case came along. And I guess what I'm getting at is it seems to me it wasn't so much that the Indiana Supreme Court was wrong. It was the Indiana Supreme Court is taking the position that is appropriate for it as a state to take until it receives further guidance from the U.S. Supreme Court. That was our view. In your three years on the court, you've authored, I think by my count, roughly 20 majority opinions on topics ranging from eminent domain to juvenile justice to utility rates to homicide. Are there any particular cases that stand out to you that you've worked on as particularly memorable, either because they were very difficult issues or had colorful facts or something? Um. I'd like to say some stand out, but frankly, each case as I'm working on it is something that you take seriously. It's pride and joy. I take the charge seriously to craft our court's decision in a way that I think represents the views of all my colleagues in a way that I hope the parties and the litigants, the lawyers and lower courts will understand and be able to apply. Do I have some cases that are more interesting than others? Um, Candidly, utility law cases aren't at the top of the list, but sometimes there are important utility law questions for those who do that kind of work to provide some guidance for lower courts. But as I mentioned earlier, I tend to really be interested in constitutional cases. We've had some of those that have come out of our court that I've been part of. One of the decisions you authored, and I raise this just because it's an interesting set of facts that a lot of people may not fully understand the basis for. One of the decisions Uh, you authored, held that a police officer who had been shot by a convicted felon during a traffic stop could not sue the gun shop that originally sold the firearm. Now, the gun shop sold it through a straw buyer who then transferred it to the gunman. But Indiana law, your court said, went against the injured officer in that case. Why? Well, we didn't quite say that the officer couldn't sue the gun shop. What we said was that the officer cannot obtain money damages from the gun shop. The request for non-monetary relief, both injunctive relief and a declaratory judgment, could proceed. We were interpreting a statute that our legislature had enacted. What the statute said was essentially an immunity provision that had conferred immunity on both gun manufacturers and gun dealers. This is a decision by the legislature. This was the legislature immunity to those types of businesses. Exactly. We were construing an immunity statute. And the question for us was, does the immunity statute extend to conduct by a gun seller 
such as the gun dealer who was involved in this case, if the gun dealer commits a crime in terms of making the sale, as you suggested, this was a straw purchase, the ultimate owner of the gun who used it against the police officer could not legally purchase a gun. So he found a straw, a guy who could purchase legally, went in, I think paid $300 for the gun, went out in the parking lot and promptly turned it over to um, the bad guy, if you will, who couldn't purchase the gun lawfully for $350. And the question for us was, does the statutory immunity for gun dealers extend to those who sell them unlawfully? Well, your first instinct might be, well, who would intend that to happen? And indeed, two colleagues of mine, Justice Rucker wrote separately, and he was joined by Chief Justice Rush, said, I can't imagine that the legislature would have intended unlawful sales to be subject to immunity protection. And I get that, and there's a lot to be said for that kind of sentiment. The reason that I came out, and I think a majority of my colleagues came out differently, was because the legislature's immunity provision did not include a requirement that it be lawful. Elsewhere in the same statute, the legislature had extended protection for lawful conduct. And what we inferred from the failure of the legislature to use the lawful requirement in the particular provision at issue here was the legislature knows how to extend immunities for lawful conduct. They didn't do it here. And what we take away from that is that it was intended to apply as well to unlawful conduct. Now, is that a happy result? That's, again, not our call at the end of the day. It's the legislature statute we're enacting. But that's why that case was decided as it was. So, So the process you're describing involves some very nuanced reading of text and drawing of inferences and conclusions. I'm wondering if you find that most non-lawyers understand the nature of the work that your court does. In other words, I'm imagining headlines that said, you know, Supreme Court says cop out of luck in suing negligent gun shop or something like that, rather than really understanding the very nuanced work that you're doing and understanding this was really the legislature's idea to extend this kind of immunity. Do you find that citizens understand as much as they should about the law? Probably not, but I don't think it's just non-lawyers who may not understand that. I think there are plenty of lawyers and judges who will look at the result of a case and ask, does that result make sense, even if those lawyers or judges or non-lawyer citizens have not reviewed the relevant statutes, contracts, provisions that may provide the governing law. And I get that, but one of the risks of assessing judges based simply on a lack of familiarity with the actual questions that are before courts is we all tend reflexively to say, well, that's a terrible decision. Who in his right mind would reach that kind of result? And my response to that is I understand the sentiment, but until you really understand the governing law that we're charged with applying, I hope you'll understand that the process as I foresee it, is not to substitute my own views about what the law ought to be. It's simply to read the legislative text and understand best I can what words the legislature enacted. Another decision that you wrote involved an appeal from a homicide conviction. And this is not a lighthearted matter, obviously, but the case caught my eye because it involved something I'd never heard of before, evidently a concept in Indiana law called the incredible dubiosity rule. And I'm wondering, is that some sort of Hoosier plain speaking? What is the incredible dubiosity rule and what role did it play in that case? You've not heard that term because you don't practice criminal law in the state of Indiana. But that's frankly a rule that's been around for a while. I'd never heard of it either. It's not my favorite term. I think it's not obvious what we're getting at. In this case, this was a life without parole case, a tragic gangland style shooting. The principal issue raised by the gentleman on appeal was insufficiency of the evidence to support the jury's verdict of guilty. And 
the lawyer on behalf of this gentleman had raised the incredible dubiosity rule of ours, which says even though there is evidence to support the jury's verdict, that evidence is so inherently dubious that no reasonable fact finder could have reached the result that it did. And to spare you and your listeners the minutia details about what our incredible dubiosity rule requires, we found that there may well be circumstances in theory when that applies, but this isn't one of those. And there was sufficient additional evidence beyond simply what the defendant was alleging to be an implausible, incredible witness that we sustained the judgment, the jury's verdict, notwithstanding the argument. I want to close by asking you about some advice that you gave to this past year's graduates from IU Bloomington's Maurer School of Law. You were the speaker for this year's commencement ceremony, and your message was as much personal as it was professional. You talked about the early days of your career. You talked about your wife, Julie. What was your message to those law school graduates about what they should know going out into their new careers? Well, of course, the initial message was congratulations. You've accomplished something that was hard fought. Three years of a legal education is not easy, and you have a lot to be proud of. But your success is not just your own, whether it's your family, your spouse, your parents. With this accomplishment, as with many others that you will attain through the course of your career, Success is never a solo act, and it's important to keep in mind those who helped you accomplish those things. So one of my messages was pat yourself on the back, but also be sure to thank all those others in your family and in your community who made your success on this day and in future days possible. It also was a point that even though we're now all lawyers, we share that trade in common. You're also more than that. You are going to be members of a community. As lawyers, you have responsibilities to the bar, to the profession, to be sure, but you also have larger responsibilities to the community at large. And as you are getting started in your career, as you're embarking on your new career as a lawyer, be sure to keep in mind that while success at the office is important and all that that entails, and it involves a lot of hard work, don't lose track of the importance of those other things outside the office that are also important to give life meaning. Family, friends, community, and the society in which we live. Good advice for both new lawyers as well as for non-lawyers and for everyone else, I think. So, Justice Jeffrey Slaughter, thank you for being our guest on Profiles. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Profiles. I'm Steve Sanders. Our guest today has been Justice Jeffrey Slaughter, an IU graduate holding three degrees from this institution and the 109th Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court. Thanks for being with us. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.